Hello, I'm Dr. Rob Califf, and I want to welcome you to this uh, program, part of a series that we're doing, interviews with important people in cardiovascular medicine, in which we're trying to find out what really makes them tick, and also learn from them uh, what they think we should all be thinking about for our own futures. I'm here today with Professor Peter Slight, someone I've admired for many years. Uh, Peter uh, is currently in Oxford in the United Kingdom. As I like to say, my relatives arrived in South Carolina thanks to being imprisoned by his relatives back in uh, Great Britain uh, several uh, decades ago. And uh, so we, I think we have much in common and much to discuss. Glad to have you here, Peter. Good. Well, it's very nice to be here, and I don't know quite why I'm here, but uh, it's a privilege. Well, and uh, I'm sorry that uh, uh, the UK prison uh, service didn't ship you out to Australia and you might have been a reasonable citizen. Well, well, as I understand it, Australia got filled up and then they uh, went to South Carolina That's after that. Probably so we, right. We were sort of second, second grade uh, people. But um, we really uh, have you here because you've accomplished so much and uh, there are things that people can learn from you. But, but let's start out with uh, what made you do what you did. Where were you born? I was born in Yorkshire, in, in, in Leeds. Um, they say about a Yorkshireman, you can always tell a Yorkshireman, but you can't tell him much. <laughs> and it's fairly true. They're a bit like Texans, I guess. And I uh, went to Leeds Grammar School, and uh, uh, my best friend was going to do medicine, because his father was a GP, and I had no contact with medicine, but because my friend was doing it, I thought, well, I might do it. What did your parents do for a living? Uh, my father was a civil engineer. Uh, my m mother did nothing in those days and still didn't. But uh, uh, my, f my father uh, was uh, an intelligent chap. And I guess I got a few of the genes, but not too many. <laughs> you had brothers and sisters? I got a brother who died at the age of 48 suddenly from an MI. So I find myself rather surprised. You know, you're wearing. Uh, this smart tie that Rob's wearing, I said, uh, uh, do you think that goes with that shirt, Rob? And he said, well, it's got a statement and it's, uh, it's got the genome apparently on it. And uh, I said, oh, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so genes so, are important, you'd admit. Genes are important, yes, yes. I thought I was very surprised that the genomic uh, revolution, if you like, has come as quickly as it had because huge amounts of money when I was uh, trying to apply for grants were going into genes and uh, they didn't look like producing anything for 50 years in my experience, but actually in about 20 they produced things. So being able to look, to look back on what's happened I think is yeah. uh, important. But yeah. So you were born before World War II? I was born in 1929. I went to Cambridge uh, uh, to do medicine and then to Barts in London, and uh, uh, that was just after the war. In 1947, I went up to Cambridge, and the place was full of ex-servicemen, so I used to run in those days, and I thought I was pretty good at the 440 yards as we ran then, uh, but I was up against uh, mature ex-servicemen, and I came in fourth every race and uh, vomited behind the, the screens. And <laughs> sort of so like I'm, the movies. So, so I gave and, up. <laughs> what were you doing during World War II? You were in high school? Uh, I was in school. We were evacuated into the country, so I saw a bit of uh, Yorkshire where we went and stayed in a country house, which now has become a boarding part of uh, my old school in Leeds. 
and then I went to Wales for two years and then I came back to Yorkshire two years and I had one year in Leeds. Leeds actually uh, wasn't a dangerous place to be because it was surrounded by smoke from factories and the German bombers couldn't see where they were. <laughs> so, so it would have been safer to stay in Leeds. So that, that war had such a huge impact on uh, the United States and all of Europe as a teenager. I haven't talked to many people that were teenagers at that Yes, time. at the time uh, you, you sort of noticed it, but not much, you know, when you're a teenager, it's your mates that you're busy with other things. Busy with other things. So when you were at Oxford, I've heard stories that you debated some. Is that, is there anything to that? Uh, no, no, you would learn to debate in, uh, in both Oxford and Cambridge, you know, debating mm -hmm. is part of the, putting your case is part of it. So. Is it a more of a formal thing there? Or you? It's very formal, uh, you, 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 uh, but not everybody does it, and I didn't do much of it, so mm -hmm. I'd skip that. Skip that part. <laughs> so you went on to your uh, academic I, career. Yes, and uh, I did house jobs at Barts uh, in London, and then uh, uh, I went to work at uh, St. George's Hospital, uh, but before that I did uh, six months at the Brompton, and I guess that was seminal because at the Brompton, which at that time was really a tuberculosis chest hospital, and there was just one tiny bit that was cardiology, but that cardiology had Paul Wood, and it turned out that uh, I would say 70% of my contemporaries, now Celia Oakley was one, uh, I can't think offhand of the others, but about 70% of them did cardiology because we used to sit in the clinic and watch Paul Wood at work, and it was absolutely fantastic. It was sort of what modern. did he do? That was well, so he he was terrific. In one he had to have th those days you had multiple appointments in order to make a living, so he had three hospitals he went to. In the first hospital, he looked at the chest X-ray first and tried to fathom out from the chest x-ray what was wrong with this patient who he hadn't spoken to. In the second one, he had the ECG. All this was done before the patient came in to see him. And he looked at the ECG and thought, what can I learn? And the third hospital, he talked to the patient first. And he kept notes in all three as to what helped make it the diagnosis. And it was a fantastic way. He had punch cards and he was very methodical and, you know, he wrote... Uh I've heard about those punch cards, which yeah. was sort of the precursor to the modern computer Absolutely. in a way. So, is it possible to do something like that today? I mean, now you just get uh, an echo and, a, and an MRI yeah, and you sure. see everything. I think things have changed today. I think uh, uh, my training was sort of haphazard. I jumped from one job to another, and then in midlife when I, uh, I had... The best thing that happened to me was going to the U.S. of A, I have to say. Because, I'm glad to hear you admit that. <laughs> well, uh, what happened was that I was promised that I would get the next consultant job at St. George's Hospital, and when I fronted up for the interview, I didn't get the job. A chap who was four years older had many papers. Uh, I had two papers published at the age of 30 or something then. And so the, the chaps at George's said, well, Peter, sorry, but you've got to go and publish something. You've got to do some research. So the answer was, go to America. And my, my boss, who was Aubrey Leatham, a uh, famous cardiologist, uh, Paul Woods, really direct successor, he said, well, I know people, uh, uh, Gil Blount in, in Denver, and so-and-so uh, uh, so in Boston, and, uh, and Maurice Sokolow in San Francisco. So I chose Sokolow, 
not because I knew him, but because it was further. And I thought <laughs> I'd like to go to San Francisco. And when I got there, uh, Soki, as he was known, was absolutely marvelous. And after a while, he said, I can't teach you any clinical uh, cardiology. He said, you better go and work with Julius Comro. And so that, was, that changed my life. I, I changed from being a card-carrying Harley Street future uh, to doing more scientific By Harley Street future, you really mean that the, that the mentality private at the practice, time was you uh, get to be a great clinician. Yeah. And then you graduate to private practice where you take yes. care of people who are... And that changed me. And, so, and it also taught me, because when I was, was at the CBRI, uh, I uh, got the Young Investigators Award. There was only one then in, in the American College of Cardiology. And that made me feel, well, I was employable. People offered me jobs. And I thought, well, if I can't get a job in the UK, I'll, I'll come back to the US, which I liked. Uh, but I did get a job in the UK, as it turned out. I came to the attend. Well, I, I went back to the UK and I did physiology for the first six months because I was studying uh, baroreceptor reflexes and things like that. And I did that. Then I went back to George's and then uh, George Pickering sort of interviewed me on a bench in Paddington Station. George Pickering was a very sort of laid back sort of character. And he said, why don't you come to Oxford? And I said, well, what's the job? <laughs> and, <laughs> and he said, well, I can get a three year fellowship from the MRC. And I said, well, I've got a very good job probably the best senior registrar job in the health service. And I, uh, you know, I, what would this job in, in Oxford lead to? He said, we're thinking of starting a new cardiac department in Oxford. So I said, well, I, I, I'd love to do that and I'll apply for the job. So he kept saying, why don't you come up? And in the end, I, I did. So your um, interview for this prestigious academic job was at Paddington Station? Yeah, absolutely, because George had been at uh, St. Mary's Hospital, which is hard by Paddington Station in London, and he was oscillating by train between London and Oxford. And so I had a couple of interviews on a bench in Paddington Station, and finally one in his room. So before we get into your Oxford time, which is really the rest of your career, right? Yeah. Um, uh, just a word on the CBRI. I don't think uh, many people uh, understand the impact that that institution had. It was um, fantastic. Julius Comro was a completely one-off person. Uh, he wrote all the research grants for everybody in that institute. There were people there from 19 countries. That was the first thing when I came. Fellows from 19 different countries. He wrote block grants for three years uh, to the U.S. Uh, whatever it was, NIH, NIH right. and he succeeded in getting them. So all his staff, Severing House and all these famous people, uh, didn't have to bother writing grants. He just got the money for three years, in three years and so on, and they just got on with the research and it was a, just a tremendously exciting place to work. Did he just pick good people? What, what did he do if someone wasn't cutting the mustard? I mean that, that... I think he was basically a kind person and if they weren't he would direct them somewhere else. He wouldn't just say you're fired. I never heard anything like that. But there were good people there actually they, and they all became network friends afterwards. You, you see I worry we don't have that many great leaders these days. So here's a person that created something. 19 countries yeah. at the time he did. It's pretty yeah. amazing. I'm just trying to get some insight from your perspective coming through it. What, what did he do that made it so successful other than giving them money? Because a lot of people get money and squander it. Well, he educated people. 
I can recall every Saturday morning, Julius would sit down only with the fellows and he, you would do something, each term you would do something different. Uh, for example, he taught you how to present. Uh, what happened was that all the fellows sat in a room with then the, the staff as well, and you gave a 20, 20 uh, 10 minute presentation and they had a video camera. A video camera in 19... 61 was pretty, you know, pretty advanced, huh? pretty advanced. And then you went out of the room and you watched the video of what you'd been doing while inside the room, the rest took you apart, you see. Wow. And then you came back and you faced the music and they told you what you'd done wrong. And you just watched yourself and you could see what you'd done wrong. Well, that was marvelous training. Another another thing he would hand out to the fellows on a Saturday morning or he'd hand out two days before a paper with the names cut off and they were always classic papers and then you had to be an editor and criticize that for, the, for your journal and then you'd go back on Saturday morning and we would discuss everybody would discuss what they thought about this article and then he'd tell you what the article who the authors were. So it really is, as I suspected, he personally... Personal supervision, personal commitment, complete unselfishness. He never took, never took credit himself for the things that were done there. He didn't put his name on all the papers and things like that. So that's, that's really what I wanted to hear about. And, and of course, I came along 20 years later as a house officer at UCSF. CBRI was well yeah. established. Yeah. There were some stories about the history, but not that much, and it, it, it impacted it a lot of people. Yeah, it did. It was a tremendous training ground for a lot of people, and it changed a lot of people's lives and what they wanted to do. So, so you arrived at Oxford now as a bona fide uh, physiologist having uh, you well, know, I was, your credentials. Well, I was uh, appointed, and I, had, uh, I said to George Pickering that I wanted, as well as to do clinical cardiology, which I had spent 20 years training in, I wanted also to have uh, to do physiology. I'd been working with John Widdicombe there uh, in the physiology lab, and I expect, and he said, that's okay, we'll fix that. And uh, he and the professor of physiology talked, and when I came, I thought I was going to be working again with my old mentor, John Widdicombe. And Linda Brown, Sir Linda Brown, who's a prof of physiology, said, no, 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 no. He said, you should have a lab of your own. And, and uh, this was again, reminiscent of old times, he said, uh, he said you, you, I said, well, it'll be very expensive because Tektronics six-channel scopes and things, you know, were not exactly cheap in those days. And so uh, he said, what'll it cost? And I said, well, I have no idea. And he said, come back in two days with a shopping list. So I came back in two days with a shopping list for what then was a very expensive lab. And he said, okay, uh, order it. And I raised my eyebrows. He said, I'll ring up somebody in the Medical Research Council and uh, fix it, he said. <laughs> and that's how it was done. Wow. And so you were off and running, running a new department of cardiology and a, new, and a big new Jointly lab. with uh, Grant Lee. We were two, two joint heads of the department. How does that work in your experience, joint heads? Is that didn't work well. Does and, it ever work well? And, I, and then the problem was afterwards that uh, we didn't always see eye to eye, and, and uh, then they were at the, the, the Heart Foundation, British Heart Foundation, uh, made their first chair in Oxford of cardiology, uh, and they 
uh, advertised it, and I was in, on a semi-sabbatical in Australia at the moment at that time, working with Paul Corner, and I saw this ad, or somebody wrote to me. Paul Beeson was also there, and he wrote to me and said, uh, "Are you going to apply for this?" And so I said, "Well." This is obviously made for Grant Lee, who was not stupid and was four years my senior. And so I said, but the trouble is that if Grant gets it, I'll have to leave Oxford, which I was then dug into and liking, because I said, I'm not going to work under him, you know, because mm -hmm. of personality reasons. And uh, anyway, in the end, I got the job, and that was difficult for both of us. And in the end, uh, it worked out. I think this is something that people who haven't gotten into this kind of politic don't understand very well. That when you get to a certain level in an academic institution or a business, for that matter, your relationship with just a few people can yeah. determine everything. Well, my life after that had been all about relationships. I mean, uh, one of I had fantastic uh, uh, fellows come as Rhodes Scholars. People like. Salim Yusuf came one year out of medical school from southern India and he had a big influence on my life afterwards because he did a bloody good thesis. I set him an almost impossible task and after two years he came and said, Prof, he said, this isn't going to work. And I said, look, Salim, you've got enough for a DPhil PhD on your head already, but if we get this cracked it will be really big. And, what uh, was it you asked him to do? Uh, it was measuring infarct size in man uh, using a combination of, of Brownwald and Morocco's maps and Sobel and Shell's four hourly enzyme curves and fitting them together so that we could get a, a handle on actual infarct size by these two methods. And that's what he did, and he did a brilliant thesis, after which uh, we said, well, we should do some trials. And then Salim wanted to do this, and, and uh, I said, well, I'm, I had met uh, a chap who was just new to Richard Dahl, uh, the professor of epidemiology and statistics. And I went to Richard Dahl, and I'd said, uh, I've got these firing rates from carotid sinus bioreceptors that I'd done in Australia in Paul Corner's place. And I said, I want some, I said, I've had three courses at the CVRI and onwards on statistics, but I don't trust myself with them. So I said, I want some statistical help. Oh, he said, there's a young chap called Richard Peter just arrived. He's underemployed. Ask him. And Richard was absolutely brilliant. So brilliant that when I gave him this paper on firing rates in dogs, he said, well, I'm not a biologist. He said, I'm not a scientist. I'm only a mathematician. He said, but, and I've done the stats you wanted, but when I look at it, there's something else here. And I thought about it, and I thought, by hell, there is something else here. So I put his name on the paper. And so when Salim was talking about doing a trial of infarct size reduction with the beta blocker, I said, first we have to go to Richard Peter. And he, on the back of an envelope, figured out we're going to need several thousand patients. So I said, well, I give up. And so he said, well, you must have friends, you know. He said, I'm doing multi-trial, multi-center trials in cancer why don't you try and get a group doing cardiology trials? So we, between Salim and I, we, we collected uh, uh, a group of people to start on ISIS-1 with beta blockers, and that led to all the ISIS trials. And of course, that had a much bigger impact than just the ISIS trials. I think that really changed the whole field of thinking about big numbers. 
Yes, I think that was Richard Peter, absolutely. It so, did. so just briefly though, when Salim arrived, I've heard uh, he was a Rhodes Scholar. He was correct? a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, what was stories he as, have was you he heard? as confident of himself then as he is now? No, uh, he was very. It was very strange. He'd never been out of south, southern India. He didn't even uh, in southern India. They, they didn't eat with a knife and fork. He came from a good background there and things, but they ate with their fingers. So he, I asked him to, you know, to meals and stayed with us over Christmas and things like that. And he said, told me afterwards that he spent all his time looking to see what people did with these instruments, <laughs> you know. But he, uh, he was always uh, very obviously intelligent and obviously uh, got a, a good brain and, and who was a delight to work with. Well, he's had an enormous impact on the field and I, you yeah. know, I've recently been spending time in uh, India and it, it just, it, it strikes me that when these, when cultures merge in favorable ways, yeah. uh, this is where a lot of the good yeah. Well, comes you and you and America in San Francisco, Salim coming yes. to. Uh, I Oxford. think this sort of networking is absolutely fabulous, and and what Salim is doing still in India is enormous. We're going on a bit, Rob. No, that's good. <laughs> that's good. Okay. So it is it is enormous what yeah. uh, he's accomplishing, yes, and the whole world is, is changing yes. in uh, yeah. many favorable and unfavorable ways. Yeah. But I think a lot of the favorable stuff is due yes. to people working together. I think what worries me now about medical education is that it's all, at least in the UK, it's on set lines. You get a five-year fellowship, you know, and at the end, rubber stamp cardiologist. In the meantime, they cut down all your clinical exposure time because it costs money to pay overtime and anyway you're not supposed to work people more than 48 hours a week. It's absolutely ridiculous. At that stage most young people want to see more, want to do more, but they're being turned out of the hospital by the administrators so that they don't have to have the risk of paying them or something for it, you know. Well, and they come out less trained. I want to come back to what your uh, your uh formula is for fixing things for the future, but just a minute more about the clinical trials. Uh, what were the important things that enabled, uh, once, once you started, you did ISIS-1, yeah. a lot of people were shocked you were able to do that, and yeah. now, you know, many years later, things are still ongoing. There are many yeah, well, I'm still involved with, uh, I mean, Rory Collins and Richard Peter run the clinical trials unit now and they do lots of trials and they still are very kind and involve me in, in, uh, uh, on the committees and things and I chaired them still for many years but now I think they're thinking I'm getting a bit gaga for that so I'm still on the committees and still in touch and it's very nice. And somewhere along the way you got married and had your own family. Well that's the most important thing that happened in my life and uh, I'm not want to get emotional but Gillian Slight, whenever I'm going to do something stupid, she sort of coughs and says, <clears throat> would that be a good idea? And sometimes we have an unholy row, and then the next day I realize she's absolutely right. <laughs> so that's very important. I, I and mean, I've had a couple of kids, and uh, one's an Australian. Uh, he's a, a barrister at the Sydney Bar, and he lives a lifestyle such as I would never dream of. Uh, you know, he's his accountant said, uh, 
uh, well, you're paying too much tax. He said, you've got to reduce it. He said, how many cars have you got? And he said, I've got one. What is it, Mercedes? He said, well, you better get another car. So what does James do? He buys an Aston Martin DB9 convertible. <laughs> the good life. <laughs> So, I've only gotten to know Jillian a bit, but she strikes me as having extraordinary common sense. Did you realize that when you married her, or was that uh, something? Well, she was a fellow medical student at Bart's, and uh, one of the things I had engraven on my heart was do not marry another medical student. And one Christmas Eve, I found I had two dates. I had a smart girl who was on the cover of one of the magazines, Picture Post, as a international lacrosse pair, and I had Gillian Slight, and uh, uh, I had to toss up, and in the end, Gillian Slight won. <laughs> I'd say you made the right choice. <laughs> That's so. my opinion. For I'd, what say it's so. I'd say so. So, so now, I, I just want to make a statement and see how you react to it. A, a friend of mine who um, came to see me uh, a couple of weeks ago is a, is a famous human resources person for some big corporations in the U.S. government. Yeah. And he said when he uh, uh, helps leaders figure out what they want to do in the future. He commonly asks them, what do you think the most important advance has been for mankind in the last century? He said they always give different answers, but he has a slide that he uses where he has two numbers, 50 and 75. He said usually people scratch their heads, what does that mean? And he says 50 was life expectancy I, I, I was in 1900. Life expectancy yes. in, yeah. And the point he's making is that um, in the past, by the time you figured out what was going on, you were dead. Yeah. And now we have all these people that are older than 50 yeah. um, who have learned a lot. And the question is, how, what, what should they be doing now? You're, you're obviously much older than 50. You've turned 80, as I understand yeah. it, just recently. Yeah, I turned so, 80 three weeks ago. But uh, the, the, one of the best decisions I made when I worked with Luciano Bernardi in Pavia, uh, who's another uh, serendipitous sort of thing, you know. I, I wrote to him, never met him. Uh, I, I was studying the f uh, a bit about uh, circulatory rhythms and I didn't understand them properly. So uh, I kept reading that this chap Bernardi was looking power spectrum analysis of circulatory rhythms of heart rate and blood pressure. So uh, I wrote to him, never met him, and I said, I got my own money, can I come to Bavia for six or eight months? And he wrote back and said yes. And when I got there, I discovered he wasn't even an assistant professor. He was what they call a ricercatore, a research worker, uh, but low down in the system, but bloody intelligent. And we clicked and we got working together and we still work together. And circulatory rhythms then led to a uh, study of music. Well, first of all, uh, some prayers like the uh, Ave Maria Catholic prayer said in Latin have a 10 second rhythm which is the rhythm of the Maya waves and when that when you say this prayer it synchronizes with the Maya waves in blood pressure and accelerates them because you're breathing in in this slow breath uh, uh, six per minute when you say this prayer and it accentuates the blood pressure swings, stimulates your vagus through the baroreceptors, my old friends, and, and increases vagal tone and calms you down. And it turns out that uh, some operas, uh, we started then to study music when we did a random order uh, presentation of stereo track traps of 
of, of jazz, b-hop, uh, uh, dodecophonic music and so on from classical and so on, random order presentation to young normal people and we found that this uh, Verdi operas had this 10 second rhythm. So, you know, Vapensiera, the British Airways song, the prisoner's song. Ten seconds. So the rhythm of life. The rhythm of human life. The rhythm of life. And that's been a very interesting thing. I go back still for 20 years and we work twice a year like students in a, a monolocale, a one-room apartment that the, they provide me with there. And, uh, and, and study this and then in the afternoons I go to uh, uh, with Maria Teresa La Rovere and other people there and study uh, people who are waiting for transplants and after transplants looking at the circulatory regulation in sick people in the afternoon and the normal young medics in the morning. So it sounds like the two things you've mentioned is a good, uh, a good marriage and um, pursuing your interests uh, regardless of your age. And yeah, be ruthless. Yeah. Do what you want. Ret I decided I was going to retire early and do this, and my wife was extremely worried. She said, well, how long will this go on for? And I said, She probably didn't want you around. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> she was really worried. And I said, don't worry, I'm still going to go on working, but I'm going to do what I want. And I'm going to do this research with uh, Pavia. She said, how long will that last? And I said, well, two or three years. 20, uh, well, just 20 years. <laughs> just a couple of questions in closing that relate to this. So, so those are things for yourself. What about, you mentioned this uh, mess that we're all concerned about where medicine has become an administrative procedure instead of a uh, profession and an exciting uh, adventure of curiosity and human Oh no, that's putting it at its worst light. I think medicine is still fascinating, you know. So what should uh, be done now? What do, you, what do you recommend? We're in healthcare reform in the U.S. The uh, U.K. has got its own issues. Uh, yeah, the U.K. health service is much, much better than it's said to be, you know, in 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 the U.S. at the moment. Because for political reasons, they're all pointing the finger and saying, "Oh, you don't want that there." And I guess it wouldn't sell in America anyway, politically. Uh, so, uh, on the other hand. Uh, American medicine is organized so that it's good for you and I, but it's not good for a lot of people. And it's going to get less good for a lot of people as it gets more and more expensive. So you've got to do something about containing costs and getting a more equitable distribution, which is what Obama wants to do, but he's obviously frightened everybody stiff. And so, <laughs> and so uh, it's going to be hard. And so so in, in this crazy political environment, what do you advise academic medical centers to do in training new physicians and researchers? Keep on trying to excite them. Uh, uh, keep on, uh, try to have more variety uh, available for them. Uh, not a stereotyped, uh, you know, sort of monolithic system, but allow for some variability in the system for people to do oddball things. And I think that is really important to, so people can follow what they want to do. Great advice. Anything else you think the uh, listeners should be interested in? If they're still awake, I think we should stop. <laughs> well, this is fantastic, Peter. Thanks for joining me. I think you've given us a lot of insight into what makes you tick, and yeah. it may be some clues there yes. for other people to follow. Well, it, it's a great pleasure talking to you about it. We've played I, on the golf course. He has says libelous statements about how I cheat at golf, and he 
I don't know what he's got this from. Well, well, I do have a memory deficit sometimes. I do forget strokes. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Professor Slide also has mastered the foot wedge as a new uh, golf club that he uses quite uh, liberally, I've noticed, when others are not watching. But I've learned to look back when I'm ahead of him after a long drive. But ha having said that, it's been a lot of fun also, just the sparring and the the golf competition, Absolutely. it's all, all in fun and, yeah. and, uh, and, and, and really good. And, you know, I'll, I'll close on that note. There are two great golfing articles, one by someone who played golf with O.J. Simpson and another by someone who played golf with President Obama that just came out. Yeah. And I think it really is true. You tell a lot about a person by how they behave on the golf course. Yeah. And you yeah. behave contentiously but in good spirit, and that's the way <laughs> it should be. I don't always win, though. Yeah. Thanks very much, Pete. Good. And thank you for joining us. I hope this has been interesting to you.